Get down with D&D. Yeah, you know me. Get down with D&D. Yeah, you know me. Get down with D&D. Yeah, you know me. Who's down with D&D? Yeah, you know down with D&D. Yeah, you know me. Get down with D&D. Yeah, you know me. I'm down with D&D. Yeah, you know me. Who's down with D&D? Hello, everyone. Welcome to Down with D&D. My name is Sean Merwin, and I am here to talk D&D with all of you and my friend, Teos Abadia. Hey, Teos. Hey, how's it going? I am awake, and I'm checking my pulse. Yep, we're still we're still here. Fantastic. Yeah, uh, yeah. this morning I got up and I threw the bones by the ocean side uh, and prayed, as we all should, uh to you know Karanos, the god of storms and uh i think it's gonna be great today it's gonna be clear skies for us yeah i splashed a little wine uh <laughs> on actually spelled it but you know it's, it's a ritual it's, nonetheless it's, it's pretty much the same thing yeah. uh, anymore so today we are going to continue our look at the mythic odysseys of theros book covering hopefully chapters two and three but before that I thought last week we had a lot of news. Well, the news just keeps on coming. It's new news. It is new, brand new, like 30 seconds old news. Yeah. That Wizards of the Coast has just announced a Dungeon Master Screen Wilderness Kit. Uh, Teos and I, I think, find it funny that last week or in the past few weeks we've been talking about exploration a lot. And how to run you know, wilderness encounters and what's too much, what's too little, and, and you know, what are some of the pitfalls for running it. And on the heels of that, here is this wilderness kit that will be released on the 17th of November for a mere $24.95. Uh, this kit equips dungeon masters with a screen and other tools perfect for running D&D adventures in the wilderness. So not only will you get a gorgeous art screen uh, on the outside, the inside will include references to wilderness rules, and it will also contain five dry erase sheets featuring hex maps, a food and water tracker, and rules references for wilderness chases, journeys, and actions you can take in combat. There are 27 cards for keeping track of conditions, initiative, and environmental effects, and then a box to hold those uh, cards. That was what was announced on the website. Teos, what what you thinking? I'm just trying to think. You know, when they finished listening to episode three, they must have jumped immediately <laughs> into production. I they can't imagine. To. I mean... No, it uh, pretty quick. It's fun when you have this convergent, right? When, when, when people, I mean, they designed this probably a year ago, but, uh, but you have this sort of, you know, that there's that acknowledgement of like, you know, DMs could use some help in this regard. So yeah, I'm really excited to look at this. Um, you, you, I mean, I'm, I'm very curious to look at the, the back of this DM screen. The front looks amazing. It's got this beautiful snowy peak and this green dragon flying over sort of snowy peaks on one side fading into forest. Um, that looks wonderful, but I'm always curious what's on the inside, what are the tables they chose to put and how, and the tables all have this special juicy information you've got to know, so how did they handle that? And I'm really curious, can't wait to see it. Yeah, it, it, it is, like you said, interesting that obviously the timing had nothing to do with us or, or anything else, and I'm sort of surprised that this wasn't around for, for the release of the Chult Adventure, yeah. um, Tomb of Annihilation, but I think it makes sense because in uh, 
you know, in, in Icewind Dale, obviously, exploration and survival is going to be a, a big part of that adventure, I would guess. And so having it for that may, uh, may be the impetus for the, the release of it at this time. Yeah, maybe it was on their minds that that concept, or maybe it was something they were going to put more in the book, or maybe there is more in the book, and it led to this. Who knows? Yeah, but this is cool. I think this is a neat thing, and I, you know, I like DM screens uh, both as a fashion statement, and in this case, this is cool to be able to like swap out to your, like your wilderness exploration screen, uh, and I also like them uh, just as a as a reminder to the table that you are the DM. <laughs> that sounds yeah. funny, but it's like wearing a suit and tie to certain work things, like. I don't right. really care to do that, but it really makes a difference in how people react to you. And I find when I'm running at cons, DM screens make that kind of a difference. Yeah, it is. It is funny to uh, to think about that. If you're running, if you're at a convention where there's you know, hundreds of tables, and you say are in charge of walking around and picking up tickets or or telling something to the DMs, uh, you know, that is the one big clue. And I don't use one. But I generally stand while I DM, yeah. so uh, I'm the usually the one person standing at the table, which which is a clue. That's a great practice, standing at the table. And you know, yeah. like if I had to, if if you forced me, right, like at gunpoint, choose the best DMs in this room. Like you could not do poorly by just choosing the ones that are standing. Well, I will. I will. Well, the problem is I just can't see over the table. I have to stand. <laughs> It has nothing to do with anything other than, <laughs> That's hilarious. That, I love that, it. That height, height, yeah. <laughs> See you for so, the table. Yep. Uh, so we will, uh, standing on a chair. Yeah, so, so that'll be a future project product, which will yeah. be a step stool for shorter DS. Step stool. That's right. Wizards. That's right. There you go. art. Make them look like gnome shoes. Oh, that would be cool. yes. Yeah. They, you know, they could be like, uh, with, with uh, like they expand, right? Like they lift you up to the height you want. Right, right, right. And if they had any voice modulation capabilities, that would just be perfect. Oh, yeah. The artificer's yeah. shoes of DMing. There you go. Yeah, there you go. I, th I think we found our next project, Tayas. Yep. Speaking of upcoming projects, the D&D &D celebration, this is just a reminder that it is September 18th through 20th, so it is still a couple weeks away, but rapidly approaching. Uh, you can go listen to panels. You can hear more about the upcoming releases, including Tasha's Cauldron of Everything. Uh, or you can celebrate the release of Icewind Dale, Rime of the Frostmaiden on that day by coming and playing. Um, there will be sessions that you can sign up for at the D&D Celebration event portal. Uh, if you just go to wizards.com uh, slash D&D Celebration, you can get all that information and all of the Wizards of the Coast proceeds from ticket sales are going to support Extra Life and the Children's Miracle Network Hospitals. So uh, if you have any questions about that and you can't get them answered uh, online on any other place, just hit Teos and I up on Twitter because we will both be there uh, running games. And two things I'll say is one is if you are signed up for the D&D newsletter, and there is a link to do that on the main D&D celebration page, which you can't, you will not miss if you go to the D&D website. Um, on that, so on that celebration page, you can enter in your email to sign up for the newsletter and you will apparently get a two hour adventure as well as a bunch of other stuff for free. So there's that's incentive. Right. Um, the other thing that's probably worth saying is when you're signing up for games, the way it works is Friday is your Ice and Dale introductory adventure 
that we saw run at DD Live and at Gen Con. It's an awesome adventure. Some guy named Sean Merwin wrote it. Um, then on Saturday, it's all about the epic. So if you've ever wanted to see a multi-table event and see how that works, here's a way to get in on that excitement. And then Sunday is the first adventure released for AL, sort of a, a different take on an introduction uh, that's available called the Frozen North that also kind of like the introductory adventure has short adventures that you can play one or more of. And that's a lot of fun. Yep. So, you know, go sign up if you're interested. If you've never played online before and you, you're interested in seeing how it works, uh, go give it a shot. What's the worst thing that could happen, yeah. right? Yeah, and the okay. other thing I've heard, which I think they're trying to resolve, is that if you sign up for a table that seems to be open and it gives you an error message, that meant it's full, try another table. Uh, mm -hmm. Apparently, the way they are doing this is manually. So when it fills up, then they manually kind of hide it. Uh, mm -hmm. So it's not uh, an automated thing, but it'll give you that error message to prevent you from going further. So you, you won't run into any trouble. You just go back and choose a different table. Cool. Thank you. I did not know that. So uh, I will pass that information along via Twitter or other forms of media uh, if I see that problem pop up. So, Sean, I see your new job posting is up. Oh, my goodness. So last week we talked about the job opening of vice president of D&D, &D, which we thought you know was really cool. And boy, wouldn't it be great if, but you know, life. And then I uh, just happened to be strolling through Twitter and I saw the announcement that they are hiring not just a vice president of D&D, &D, but also a senior game designer and a senior editor for D&D. &D. Uh, every once in a while, you'll see a, a job posting come up for D&D. &D. It's like, oh, that's cool. On a rare occasion, you will see two job openings and be like, hey, uh, two job openings. But three job openings, I don't know if I've ever seen that. And, and that's, that's awesome. Uh, now, if you are in the, you know, in the business field, in the game design field, in the editing field, and you've got some experience, there is no better time than now to, uh, to, to go. And the link to that is uh, boards.greenhouse.io slash wizards of the coast. We'll have a link in the show notes as well. Uh, so just even if you're just interested in what does it take to become a professional, you know, game designer, editor slash uh, VP, <laughs> you can you can go to that that site and just just give it a look. Yeah. And and when I posted about it on Twitter, I got a lot of well, what's wrong with the company because there's all of this happening, and you know I know that there's a lot of negativity out there in the in the RPG world toward Wizards of the Coast simply because they are Wizards of the Coast. Uh, there's not anything wrong, uh, I, I don't think. Uh, I think one is probably replacing Kate Welsh. Uh, that would be the senior game designer. Right. Uh, v VP of D&D, &D, uh, that was probably the position that Nathan Stewart was in, and he was moved into a different position, so that's probably that. And then the senior editor, they've been using freelance editors for probably 10 years now, They're mostly freelance editors. So they're probably just going to bring uh, an editor in-house rather than relying so much on uh, I'm freelancers. Which, which to me, that's the most interesting one. And I haven't really seen folks talk about this uh, on Twitter, but to me, that's the one that's, that's super interesting because Wizards used to have an editorial department 
that served it. And some of the people were, were dual job, like they did editing and they did game design and you know various pieces. Right. It wasn't like it was just a bunch of people sitting around editing. Uh, but you had you know folks like Jeremy Crawford, and then you had a whole bunch of people, you know several people that were in the job of editing. They still use freelancers, but uh, mm -hmm. but it was mostly done in house, and that really got closed down. Yeah, it turned into freelance only, and so bringing back in a senior editor, um, you know maybe that's about freeing someone like Jeremy up more, uh, mm -hmm. but it represents a change here. But as you said, it's really hard for outsiders to know what all of this entails. Um, mm -hmm. You know, at a small RPG company, you can count the four people and sort of say like, oh, okay, you know, that's what's happening. <laughs> Maybe get right. some intelligence. But in this yeah. case, uh, you know, like I know uh, through friends that Wizards of the Coast has done a transition to be more of a studio oriented shop mm -hmm. um, a couple of years ago. They, they started this process. And so that means that you sort of replicate things and create a sort of little incubator for your product line. And you have one of everything. So you have your own kind of graphic designer and you have your own editor and so on. And so right. just that alone can create shifts that are completely based on what the corporation Wizards of the Coast is doing. Mm -hmm. um, that, that is not based on what D&D is doing. Correct. And then we can misinterpret that and think, oh, it means X, but it doesn't have to, right? Um, right. So, so that's just the kind of things that happen at a, at a larger company like that. Uh, yep. some, some folks might mention Hasbro, but Hasbro is very independent from Wizards of the Coast. So I don't think that tends to have much of an impact at all. True. And there's also a misunderstanding about what it means by editor, uh, right? There are different levels of editing. And, you know, you can have your basic proofreader, copy editor, um, that they're not making any major decisions. They're fixing typos. Then you have sort of your, your general baseline editor who looks at it uh, in terms of how it fits with the rules. Um, so they, or if it's an adventure, maybe how the adventure flows. So they're going kind of one level deeper to interact more with the designer on making sure that the product, uh, not only everything's spelled right, everything looks right, but it fits into the overall scope of what the product is trying to do. And then you have someone who is kind of like an executive editor, almost like a producer level, um, where they have their fingers in many different aspects of the project, not just the text, right? So they may be dealing with art as well. They may be dealing with playtesting as well. Uh, so a, this may just be a move from where they might have had producers in the past they may now just be calling that role more senior editor it could be that's yeah. smart it's, it's, yeah there's a it's lot here in the job description that says things like managing freelance staff uh, commissioning them those are things that producers typically did um, mm -hmm. it also talks about um, marketing copy and cover text and so what it may be is a, is a, a really smart strategy of trying to say, like, let's make our products and our sort of tasks, jobs, pro projects align better and have a common language, um, yep. have a, a, a more streamlined view at, at, at what the words are, right? The words should align. They should all reflect what we're saying on the marketing side. Our freelancers are in our lockstep with that. Our schedule's all working with it. So, you know, there can be a lot here and it's hard to know how it'll play out over time. Very true. So 
that uh, that's our take on all those job openings. Uh, we wanted to talk really briefly about this final uh, subclass that they put up for the Unearthed Arcana article and then the survey that followed. Um, a couple of weeks ago, we talked about the College of Spirits. I wanted to run down quickly through the undead patron for warlocks. So the undead as a patron is an entity that resides in the dark corners of the multiverse. So they talk about Aserarach or Aslan or Lord Soth or Strahd or some other ancient and powerful undead being. They are the one that gives you your powers. Um, so what does this entail? Well, first is the expanded spell list that basically touches on all the usual suspects for for this sort of necromantic thing. So you've got your false life, you've got your blindness, uh, you've got your death ward, uh, things like that. For first level, you get an ability called Form of Dread. And I found this very interesting. So as a bonus action, you can transform for one minute. While transformed, you gain these benefits. You gain temporary hit points uh, equal to 1d10 plus your warlock level. Once during each of your turns, when you hit a creature with an attack, you can force it to make a wisdom saving throw. And if it fails, the target is frightened of you until the end of your next turn, and you are immune to the frightened condition. And I, I find these sorts of things interesting, yeah. uh, these sorts of transformations for a minute, uh, because they can either be really cool uh, or they can just be burdensome to me. And, and this, I think, falls on the cool side. The, the saving throw every time you hit something with an attack can, may be burdensome. I would want to play test it first. Um, but I think it's, it's simple enough that you, uh, that you can do it. I like it when it sort of changes the way you can play your character. Right. I love this for the people that don't want just the simple warlock. They want something that while they're in this new form, it changes the way they play their character. Um, this doesn't quite do that, but it at least uh, offers something different. Yeah, I mean, it's interesting. So essentially, it's mechanically this, this saving throw that you're doing when you hit someone is causing you to be frightened. So it's disadvantage on ability checks and attack rolls. And that that is heavy to be doing that constantly. It's definitely problematic for bosses, right? Like it's not that big mm -hmm. deal if you hit the, you know, the one goblin in the room, fine. But when every round you are possibly, you know, getting this creature to be at disadvantage, disadvantage on all of their attacks, mm -hmm. eh, that could be pretty annoying. Yeah, it, it it it's only when you hit. So that's that's the one thing that I think is a saving grace. And it has to be a spell or an ability that you make an attack roll for, right? If you True. cast some, some spell where they have to make a saving throw, that doesn't count as an attack. Yeah, that's true. Uh, yeah. So it, it, that mitigates that a little bit. Um, and, you, and you can do it a number of times per day equal, equal to your proficiency bonus. Uh, and then you regain all expended uses when you finish a long rest. Uh, I do want to go back and say just really quickly that the concept I'm not super in love with just because it's to me this has a very 4e feel where it's really super powery right like sort of a serac lord soth strad like that's pretty powerful and dark stuff and also like aren't we the heroes <laughs> aren't we the good guys yeah um, it's maybe to me it's i mean obviously you can easily change this but to me 
story-wise, this is maybe a little too far. Like following mm -hmm. Lord Soth, like eh, that's a bit much to me. But but I guess patrons are always pretty dark. Yeah, yeah. Well, I mean, right. That's the thing about warlocks, though, right? Is is it is mostly dark. You you have the celestial, um, which which is which is f for sure light. Um, but all the other ones, even the the Fey one, yeah, even Fey, you're right. Um, is is dark so you know i i can forgive it that i think mm -hmm. um yeah, okay. but sure yeah so at that's first level at sixth level you get grave touched uh you don't need to eat drink or breathe in addition when you hit a creature with an attack uh and roll damage against the creature you can replace the damage type with necrotic and if you are in your form of dread then you can roll an additional damage die when determining the necrotic damage that the target takes. Uh, okay. This, I, this is, like I say, this is, I like this, um, but this is a very personal thing. I like things, like I just said, that, that sort of change the way you play your character. So when you're in this form, everything you do is different it's sort of like the barbarian rage right um you're, you're hitting you're hitting you're hitting then when you go into this rage you get these abilities this is a, along those lines maybe a bit more complicated um but still sort of this switch that you turn on that changes the way you play your character yeah it, it can certainly be very strong uh and as you said a lot depends what what the, the particular situation, but in an adventuring day where you have, you know, three or four combats, depending on your level and your proficiency bonus, you mm -hmm. can have this transformation for all of your battles, right? Yeah. yeah. Three combat that day, was... you're always going to have D10 plus warlock level and hit points and temporary hit points. You're always going to be doing this attack business where you do extra damage and frighten them. That's pretty yep. powerful. If it's yep. a giant yep. dungeon, then less so. Right, and that, that was the thing I was going to say uh, at the end of this, but you brought it up now, <laughs> so it's, a, it's... No, 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 it's, it's a perfect time to talk about it, right? Is this concept of how an adventure runs? And if you are running one big deadly combat per day, that's a completely different game than if you are running 12 easy combats in one day yeah. because both turn out to be uh challenging in different ways but it it changes the way the rules work right because as you say if you only are fighting th three combats and they each combat takes less than a minute then you're always in this form and you may as well just always be in that form. But if you are running many, many combats that each only last a round or two, but they take place over a full day, then you're, you're only getting a chance to use this in three, three rounds or four or five rounds rather than in 10 rounds once. So yeah. it's, you know, it, it is a, it's an important concept to, to consider as you read and judge these rules. Right. Uh, at level two, uh, oh, I was going to say, say this next one. I mean, hilarious. Yeah. So at level ten, you get mortal husk. You have resistance to necrotic damage, and if you are transformed using your form of dread, you instead become immune to necrotic damage. Okay. Uh, 
Uh, in addition, when you are reduced to zero hit points, you can cause your body to explode. I always love it when my body explodes. Uh, each creature within 30 feet of you takes necrotic damage equal to 2d10 plus your warlock level, and then you are revived with one, with one hit point in your previous space along with your gear, and you gain one level of exhaustion. Uh, once you revive this way, you can't do so again until you finish 1d4 long rests. Um, that 1d4 long rest, you know, I'm like, okay, I could tweak this, I could tweak that going down through the list, and then I get to the 1d4 long rests, and I, you know, the, I, I hear the brakes screech uh, as, as I hear that. Uh, I, I like the idea that maybe this is so powerful that we can't refresh it after every long rest. I don't know that rolling a die for long rests um, yeah. is manageable at the table. I can barely remember you know, what my players or what my character did the last combat, much less, oh, wait, was it three long rests that we had to wait for? Uh, how many long rests have we taken since then? Uh, you know, if you don't take a long rest, but maybe every three sessions because you run short sessions, um, now you're talking about 12 sessions to remember th back. You know, it's, it's not, uh, I'm not in love with this thing. one. I mean, I, 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 I like the concept of sort of being able to explode, but there's a lot here that, so you can cause your body to explode. You don't have to. Um, yeah. so that's where you sit down and you look at, okay, I just hit zero hit points. Do I want to inflict damage on whatever's within 30 feet? Oh, how many right, allies, how that's, many enemies? Right, that's your friends, right. right. But then I get to come back with a hit point, but I'm going to have a level of exhaustion to be at disability on all, disadvantage on all my ability checks. Uh, you know, it's, it's kind of a lot. I, I just see the game slowing down instead of it being like an epic moment. And then you've right. got to figure out your D4 long rests on top of all of it. Right. And, and any ability that spell, ability, attack, whatever that has a chance to damage your allies, you are, you're automatically causing problems at the table, even if you have a bunch of people who are cool with each other, um, because then it becomes a tactical thing. Well, I'm only at seven hit points, so you're probably going to kill me, even though you'll be alive. But wait, I'm useless in this fight, so go ahead and do it, versus, no, wait, I'm the cleric, and I'm I can get you up, so don't do it, and then I will just heal you next round. You know, all that yeah. slows things down, as you said. Yeah, I, it, it needs a pass, and it needs a. I think, you know, there's something here that needs to change. Maybe, maybe oh, yeah. all of it. <laughs> yeah, yeah, and and I'm sure that if it if it gets the feedback that we're giving it, then it will either get a big redesign or get dropped completely. Uh, and at level fourteen, your capstone is spirit projection. As an action, you can project your spirit from your body. The body you leave behind is unconscious and in a state of suspended animation. Your spirit can remain outside your body for up to one hour or until your concentration is broken, as if concentrating on a spell. When your projection ends, your spirit returns to your body or your body magically teleports to your spirit space, your choice. While projecting your spirit, you gain the following benefits. Uh, your spirit and your body gain resistance to bludgeoning, piercing, and slashing. When you cast a spell of conjuration or necromancy, it doesn't require verbal, somatic, or material components that lack a gold cost. And you have a flying speed equal to your walking speed, and you can hover. You can move through creatures and objects as if they were difficult terrain, but you take 1d10 force damage if you end your turn inside a creature or an object. 
and if you are using your form of dread once during each of your turns, you can deal necrotic or and you deal necrotic damage to a creature. You regain hit points equal to half the amount of the necrotic damage you dealt. Yeah. Again, so much to unpack here. It's flawed right at the start. Um, it's flawed just from the start because you are separating your body from your spirit. So now there are two things. Now, if a fireball goes off, does it hurt your body and your spirit? Or just, or just one? Because you're taking double damage uh, otherwise. Even though you, you are resistant to bludgeoning, piercing, or slashing, you, you're still, are you splitting your hit points or are they the same? You don't, does what I'm saying make sense? Yeah, yeah, absolutely. I mean, that whole, or, or you have to stash your body. Right. Right? So you either have to put your body in a closet and you've got an hour to roam around, but then you're going to right. snap back to it or bring your, I guess your body can, body can come to you, which is good. But it's yeah. a little, it's a little, like this to me feels very AD&D, like especially to yep. me, there would be sort of things like this where it sounds really fun and then you try to use it in play. Right. And it would be so hard to like, guys, guys, I want to, you know, stash my body somewhere. No, oh, come on. We got to, you know, you wouldn't know if we'll have an hour. You end up arguing about it and you don't use the power. Right. Yeah, I, I would I would not. I think this like you said, the splitting your body just is gonna create it's gonna make it hard to use this. And and if your body's unconscious, any attacks against it are critical hits. Yeah. Right. Uh so so yeah, okay, yeah, your spirit's wandering around while the dragon is chewing on your unconscious body. Uh that's probably not good. Yeah. It, it is powerful otherwise, but it's just that mitigating that body separation, I think, would make this hard in, in everyday play. Yep. And yet it's your capstone, so you want to do this, right? You, right, exactly. This is the cool thing that you waited 14 levels to do. So, uh, how yeah. often can you do this? Uh, let's sad? see. As an action, I'm not sure. I, I copied over. I didn't copy over all the text, um, so I don't know. Let's see. Yeah, just take a uh, well, uh, you can uh, once per long rest, basically. Okay. So. Okay. Yeah, yeah. I mean, it's it's obviously going to get changed. So. <laughs> so. I, I don't. I don't have a lot. You know. Yeah. I, I I think they probably just threw it out to see, you know, to see get get feedback, get people's thoughts on it, uh, which is fine. It's a totally fine way to design. Um, it's just you have to be ready to take take the criticism that we're giving it. <laughs> yeah. But uh, it, this is an interesting one for sure. This this uh, this warlock pact is, is a hard one, yeah. and and I think that's the the idea is neat. And that how can you really steep a warlock in their patronage to this extent where they take on the form of that patron, um, right. and a really strong. Again, we said like we said last time, this is necrotic, just like the other one. There's a lot of ghost necrotic type stuff. So does that signal something coming out in that vein? Who knows? Yeah. Yeah, well, I mean, they reissued Strahd, so it's true. who knows? Okay, and hey, you were on Adventurers Wanted, covering codes of conduct. Yeah, how'd it go? It was great. You know, they are so nice, Maat, uh, Amy. Uh, we had a great time talking about codes of conduct in general, the kind that you use at conventions, uh, and then also the product that I wrote, the free product, Code of Conduct for RPG Projects. We talked about that as well and answered many questions that had come in um beforehand so things like um you know what how do you go about designing one and, and can you use someone else's code and, and just a lot of interesting uh 
concept. So I, I do encourage folks to listen to it. I think it's going to, hopefully it's an important listen around yep. how our hobby is changing in this regard. Yep. And that's one of the things that we've considered talking about on this show in the past and, and we'll continue to consider it. And so the code of conduct that you wrote uh, that's up for free on the DM Guild is one for companies, correct? Yeah, and it's, it's on drive-through. And, the, and it, it's not to say just a company, okay. but it can be. Um, it's on drive-through and it's on itch. Uh, and it's free. You can redistribute it as long as you credit. And the whole idea is take this code of conduct and use it on your project, making any changes you want to it. But you're ready to go or you can edit it. Uh, and what it's supposed to do is guide uh, a group that's working together, right? One or more than one creator working together to say, hey, here's what we're saying is expected behavior on this project. Um, and then we also talked about things like the Herald's Guild and Baldwin Games, how they have a code of conduct which says, hey, if you're a DM or if you're a player, here are the expectations for you. Uh, if you're a gaming store, right? Those kinds of co- codes of conduct. Yeah. And if you do want official support for your convention show uh, from the Adventurers League, you do need to have a code of conduct approved by them. Uh, so that's something to keep in mind yeah. as well. Yeah, and, and the Adventurers League has a number of resources and examples of codes of conduct that they provided when they made that change. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Cool. All right. So that was the news. Now we want to get to our main topic today, which is our continuing look at Mythic Odysseys of Theros. This will be part two. In the previous part, we talked about the new races, your backstory, the heroic drive, the subclasses, the athlete background. And we talked about the general tenor of the book, the importance of of dreams and belief and how deities and religious patrons can drive play. Now we want to delve into the gods themselves, what they bring to the game, what they would bring to a Theros campaign specifically uh, in terms of what they mean to characters. So do you want to talk about this chapter? Yeah, this is one of the meatier chapters in in the book. I think really chapter two and three are both very meaty, a lot of information. Uh, And this really does take on each of the gods that they have here, uh, 15, is that the total? Yeah. And they, uh, you know, if you're familiar with sort of the Greek pantheon, this certainly reflects that kind of uh, thought with a few changes, but you have a whole bunch of really interesting gods uh, that are brought to life even more so by having the incredible art that comes from the Magic the Gathering side. So just... It's a beautiful look at these 15 gods. Each one gets a nice level of detail. I think it's something like uh, two and a half pages for each of the gods. Um, And it will talk about their sphere of influence, their goals, and the divine relationships they have, sort of who they get along with, who who they're contrarian with, what it's like to worship that god. And then it goes into details about the, uh, the champions and, and mm-hmm. if you are, a, so basically a character, if you are a character that follows this God, what does that mean? And it has a bunch of information on that. Yeah. And in addition to sort of that background um, character building information, they have a mechanic that is definitely uh, mechanical in nature as opposed to narrative in nature. And that's, that's the piety mechanic. Uh, you want to touch on that briefly? 
Yeah, sure. I, I think it's a really cool idea, right? Because when you're trying to create a, a book like this, a setting book, you want to say, well, what can I do that mechanically will drive and encourage play so that this all matters, right? So, so the important parts of the setting matters. And gods are one of the super important parts of the Theros setting. So this mechanic is meant to reinforce that and drive a continual relationship between the players, their characters, and the gods. So you start with a score of one. And then anytime you do something that advances your deity's interests or follows their ideals, gives you plus one to your piety score. And so I think that's generally meant to happen like, uh, actually it does say this, it says, and I'll quote it, as a general rule, you can expect to increase your piety by one during most sessions of play, assuming you're following your God's tenets. Um, so that's really cool in terms of this drive. We'll talk about what that means in a second, but I wanna pause here and say, hello old school with this piece that says if you change gods you restart and this is something that came up in AD&D type play that yeah. we haven't seen in a while right my paladin you know my lawful good paladin did something wrong you know tortured a prisoner or something terrible like that yeah. uh you lose you know right your paladin it right it's this you're basically now off you're, you're now a fighter. Congratulations. <laughs> exactly. And, and not, not only that, you're a pr pretty weak fighter. Yeah. So this, uh, you know, you can have a piety score of 30. Uh, and if you decide for whatever reason to change gods, you know, you no longer follow Malgus, the god of slaughter, because you saw that was a bad idea. Uh, you're at piety <laughs> one, which is like, whoa, okay. Yeah. And, and it's interesting, again, you know, mechanics telling us, how wizards think the game should be played is something that's as designers we always look at yeah so it tells you you're supposed to get about one point per session generally and then at certain levels you gain benefits so the first level is level three so when you get three piety you get uh, a, a, a an ability yeah. a feature right and then at 10 points okay so if you get one per session uh that's three sessions and then seven more sessions then at 25 you get the third step in this ability and then at 50 you get the, the fourth and so what that's if you can equate those to the tiers of play you don't have to but you can uh, because there are four of them so that, are they telling us that you should play about three adventures or three sessions and then you should be second level or you know fourth level uh, fourth level and then after 10 you should be about 10th level and then after 25 you should be about 60 you know it's yeah. it's weird that those were the numbers chosen and, and why not just say tears right but uh, yeah it is it, it is an interesting piece like someone must have sat down and done the math on the tiers and not quite wanted to use the tiers, which is interesting yeah so it's it's kind of a bizarre as a designer i want my numbers to make sense yeah right i want there to be a reason behind them so those numbers uh just kind of pop up there the other thing is to me theros is a campaign i would want to play more like uh shadow of the demon lord like you know quick advancement mm -hmm. epic yeah. kind of stuff and 50 sessions is a yeah. long shot for most people playing a Theros campaign, I think. Yeah. 
but isn't the whole point to be kind of godly? So you know, yeah. you know, adjust to taste. The, the the DM can easily change this, right? Oh, it's yeah. not fifty; it's thirty-five or whatever. You know, right? Or or it's one per level, and it's it's you know after two, nine, mm-hmm. fifteen, and and eighteen or or whatever. Yeah. Um, and as long as they do something while they're that level to advance their gods. Uh, you know, wants and desires, then they get it. But what do they get? Mm, tell you, them you may what be they asking. Get. Yeah. Well, tell them what they've won. <laughs> so it, it, one of the things that's it's very interesting is the what they get really varies. Uh, I, I, to me, this design, there's, it's not like they're not balanced, but that they, they aren't equal, let's say. Mm-hmm. Uh, it's not that they're wildly inconsistent, but it feels to me like design that first and foremost is going for what the deity would give. And then secondly, is trying to be balanced. Um, but as an example, let's just take, you know, Athreos, the death god. So piety three, your life is intertwined with the fate of the dead. You can cast gentle repose without material components, number of times equal to your wisdom modifier. Okay, mm-hmm. cool. That's fine. You know, it's mm-hmm. kind of, it's yeah. a lot of story aspect there. Uh, mm-hmm. 10 plus, you can cast speak with dead requiring no material components can do so once per long rest. Uh, then at level 25, you cast false light, no material components. You gain 25 temporary hit points when you use it. And you can do that once per long rest. Mm-hmm. Pretty strong, pretty good. Uh, then champion when you're piety level 50, you can increase your intelligence or wisdom score by two. And you can also increase your maximum for the, that score by two. Mm-hmm. So you can go beyond the normal, you know, maximums of the game. That's, that's pretty sweet. Yeah. Um, but there are some that are really, really strong, like Erebos um, in the level 25. Uh, that was a really tasty one. That is, when a soul is sent to its right place, you can draw on the energy of the underworld to empower you. Creature within 10 feet dies. Use your reaction, gain temporary hit points equal to your level. And you can just do that all the time. Yep. <laughs> uh, yeah, that's, uh, yeah. <laughs> it really I mean, varies. Yeah. I mean, if it said an ally, that's, that's right. That's rare. Mm-hmm. But a creature, I mean, yeah. that's, that's happening like every round. <laughs> Endless temps all the time, baby. Right. And yeah, right. so that is, uh, and then there's some like Clothis is just a really cool god of fate. Uh, super awesome in all the ways. And you get the spell command as your level three. So, you know, no gentle repose for you. You're commanding people a number of times equal to your wisdom modifier. Right. You know, that's, that's a stronger thing. For sure. Uh, yeah. I mean, so again, when you add new abilities and especially new abilities that don't jive with the regular progression of a character from the base rules, you're just adding complications to this machine that is this game. There are just more gears with which to either break uh, in, in terms of falling apart or break in terms of overpowering when you start combining it with other things. So honestly, I love this. So yes, that's totally true. But I think that's what makes this, to me, really compelling. I mean, I like the story. I like the, the overall story of Theros. But the, to me as a DM, what, what excites me about this is, oh, I could run a fast and furious 
not yeah. as in the movies, but you know, fast. <laughs> well, kind of, kind, kind of, of like yeah, the kind movies. of, I guess. Yeah. yeah. You know, like we're all super beefy, crazy good at what we do and we're gaining piety left and right. And we, you know, go ahead, increase your int score, go ahead, get temporary hit points, every combat. And I'm going to yeah. throw mythic monsters at you. Like let's make it clash of the Titans. Right. And yeah, let's have it sure. go bap, 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 bap as we play like fast and, and furious. And, yeah. You know, I, I, I think that's what's neat. And I, I kind of wish that they maybe had gone a little further by saying just level up every time you play and mm -hmm. the piety should be like you said, kind of based at certain levels so yeah. that it's faster Yeah, and just dive into it. Yep. And, and I think in that sense, it does work, right? Because a lot of it then depends on, what sort of adventures that you're going to run, what sort of campaign you're going to run, like you said. And we will get to that at some point, talking about uh, you know, creating adventures in Theros. Yeah. Uh, but for now, we are going to move. Is there anything else you want to say about the gods before we moved on to the realms? Only that this is really very well done. Um, you get the information you want for each of these gods to make them feel fleshed out, to, to make them tangible. It, it, it's written with an eye towards how you use them in play. And that's really cool. Mm -hmm. Yep. Now we wanted to touch on chapter three, which is your chapter setting. Uh, the chapter that gives you the setting in which the gods and the mortals play. Uh, one thing I want to mention about setting in role-playing games and really in, in any sort of storytelling, whether it's fiction or movies, uh, is that it is more than where the action takes place. Setting is more than that. It's more than just where the characters exist. Setting becomes a character if you are using setting correctly. It can both inform the plot. It can also drive the plot. It can basically, setting becomes the plot if the setting is intriguing enough. So when I look at any sort of new setting, that's what I'm looking at. I'm looking at not just what is it, but how are we going to use it? That's really so, good. So now I want to know what, what you took away from this. Well, that's, that's hopefully what we're going to get at. <laughs> So, so there, there are three realms. Um, there's the mortal world, which they go into detail on each of the three city states, the, the polys. Then they talk about the realm of night, Nyx, right? The realm of the gods, the sky, where the constellations um, basically hold the gods in place. And then the underworld, um, which is sort of your, not, not your hell, right? Not your Avernus, but sort of your afterworld. Yeah. So let's start breaking these things down. Let's talk about the mortal world. You want to? Yeah. So I think what's cool and different, you know, a lot of times you get something like the Forgotten Realms that's so enormous that you mm -hmm. literally see Wizards of the Coast focus on a sliver of it in the Sword Coast, right? Right. Okay. And this, this pre-bakes that in and they just say like, there's this really dangerous world and huge mountains that close us off. So we're just in this small coastal area. Yep. And we've got three cities uh, and it's hard to travel far beyond. If, if you travel like in, in the water, <laughs> despite the fact these places all have navies, if you, if you go beyond the unchartable, who knows how long ocean you drop mm -hmm. off the side of the world. Yep. <laughs> it's very classical uh, thought around what the world feels like. And that's kind of yep. neat. What it does is it funnels you into being in a very concentrated uh, setting 
that has three distinct cities and then some outlying lands that tend to be your new races and where they live. Um, yep. And that, that's cool. Yep. Yeah, it's, it is, I like campaigns. Uh, I like campaign settings that, that are small, that are congregated, uh, that are easy, easy to navigate. And this is definitely that. And I think it's even more important to do it in this sense, because if we are going to run this mythic, this over-the-top campaign, I don't want to get trapped in the minutia of what are the politics of this one little city-state, mm-hmm. right? I want them to be a starting point, and then I want to get out of them into the unknown and into the, the place where incredibly large things are happening. Uh, so in, in that sense, I didn't want to read about 27 nations and yeah. 47 cities. I'm, I'm glad that it was Great point. the point and the fact that they basically are rep, they basically represent these three city states basically represent three known quantities in, in the Greek world, <laughs> right? One is Sparta, one is Athens and one is the Amazon basically. Yeah. But yeah, and, and it's pretty easy when you're reading, if you would all know about, you know, if you know your history at all, this part of history, uh, it, it rings true just as you read it, you go, oh, okay, you know, everybody yeah. must serve in the military, you know, you've got this wandering bands that make up the army of Akros, and, and it's very militaristic, and you're like, yep, Sparta, okay, got it, <laughs> you know, but yeah. it's done, I think, in a good way, like, it, it's not like you roll your eyes and go, geez, here we go, it's tired, it actually, there are some really nice aspects to each of these. Yep, yeah, they, they do, they do give um, good, they give great information, not just good information, right, this yeah. is, this is great, uh, concise, but clear, um, setting information the only thing for me that's lacking and it may come later is what stories do i tell here mm-hmm. uh, because they they give you the seeds not even the seeds right they give you potential stories but like in the in acros the sparta uh, nation mm-hmm. the king died the queen disappeared what there's rumors that the king isn't really dead but he's been seen out there running with the centaurs and and so who's you know who's going to be the new leader and leaders can be overthrown with trial by combat essentially you know so all of all of that is great cool information but what does it mean in the campaign i want to run right so tell me that i need to know that yeah you're right it, it is a bit um yeah it's a step short of giving you what you need to really run the campaign yeah yeah and, and maybe it comes later. I haven't read the, the the chapter on adventures yet, so maybe maybe I'm just. I think that that telling... we'll, you know, we'll talk about that. I don't think it quite does that. Okay, cool. Yeah. Then then yay me. Uh, <laughs> You're right. So 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 the next uh, section they talk about after the mortal world is Nyx. Can I just say the gods. some quick yeah. things that are fun? Which um, and and you could all these have really neat aspects and like you said and, and i didn't think this in my notes but it's true this is really well written like it's useful oh yeah great words really well done i mean a plus plus to to the team that did this part um but i want to talk about Statessa a little bit because it is a pretty neat uh atypical part of a setting you know we do not see this in D uh often at all this amazon type take 
So it's a forest mm -hmm. city that blends into surroundings and living in harmony, but it's not at all like some elven city. The population is largely women who hold most leadership and work positions. And then there are tons of children, because what happens is at age 14, when you're a man, you basically de decide, and almost always will, decide to go off and find your own way in the world. So you go off and explore. Whereas women believe that they become heroes through martial exploits and leadership. So they stay there and sort of hone themselves, becoming sort of stronger and stronger. Um, it also has a number of takes on gender fluidity. It has a, a, a section where it talks about how you may choose to see yourself as a woman and then play that sort of role in the society. So you stay there and you work on these things, but then you may decide that you're male and now you go off and travel or vice mm -hmm. versa. And that, that, I thought that was very interesting. So it mm -hmm. all creates a very different feel for this city than what we've seen in, in, in settings for d &D. True, very true. Yep, uh, anything else you want to talk about with that no. mortal world? Okay. Uh, can you talk for a minute uh, then about Nyx? Yeah, uh, sure. Realms of the Gods? Yeah. And actually, I will go back and say one thing, which is that these three cities are surrounded by lands that are also described. Uh, and they have these very, like, it's the land of the centaurs, the land of the, the Leon and all the minotaurs. Those are all really well done as well. Mm -hmm. All right, so Nyx is the realm of the gods. And what's kind of cool about this, it's an endless plane of existence that you can see in the constellations at night. So it's a little bit like your Mount Olympus type situation, but instead of just seeing it on top of this one mountain, which there is actually a Mount Chiastos in the setting too, uh, yep. but you're seeing it written in the stars and you, the stars are kind of looking down on you as well. So it's, it's sort of a two-way relationship uh, and you can get to Nyx as a champion and kind of, and this is described in later chapters that you can, you can access this to sort of claim things from the gods, which is kind of cool. And it has different regions. It's map. You can't map it, but it has these like Mystic Sea, uh, the Tobian Fields of Endless Battle, some really cool regions in it as well. Yeah. And th that unmappable thing goes back to the land as well. I remember they talked about, you know, it's, it's almost like Av Avernus in the sense that it changes. Yeah. You know, one time you go from one place to another and it takes you five days. The next time it takes 10 days. Yeah. Um, so it's it's just this sort of to keep the mystery of it intact. And so could you finish up by yeah. telling us about the underworld? So the underworld is, is neat in that it is it is a very classical view of, as you said, not hell, it's not Avernus, but where a soul goes to rest. And where you go, uh, there are a number of different wards or regions in the underworld that are based on sort of the type of person you were when you died, where your soul goes, you know, you were into battle or you were a craftsman or whatever. So that you go to that appropriate ward and the wards are all tied together by Tartix River, which is a River Styx version, of course. It's important to say in the underworld, you can reach it by magical means, but it's not actually underground. Um, each of the regions or wards has really cool ideas. And my favorite thing is about the returned which is the idea that you can escape the underworld having died. But if you do so, you have to follow this path of Phenax, who is the first person to sort of escape the underworld. And when you do so, you come back without your memories. And there are a number of return. Like this is a thing you can find. And there are two cities on the map where the return congregate in these necropolis. And um, mm -hmm. they, um, they are grim, purposeless spirits. 
They're often haunted by trying to regain memories. Like there's a, there are various groups of them. They, there's a group that the return into different categories and there are those who are trying to regain memories and scri scribes that are writing down. There are these gray merchants which are really interesting. They sell and trade things that feel like junk. Mm -hmm. They want sort of useless things and are giving useless things for them and it's not clear why they do that. Uh, return mages sometimes can cast through the use of blood magic, slaying small animals and things like that to power it. Mm -hmm. Some are evil and cursed. All of it is just great adventure fodder. And in fact, the included yeah. adventure uses the return for the concept. Yeah. Yeah. As I was reading this, I was like, oh, my campaign is just totally planned out for me. Right. <laughs> yeah. Because, right. It, it, it goes on that. At first, it's local, right? First, your heroes, your heroes locally, then your heroes regionally, and then you move out into sort of the unknown. And, and this is laid out for you perfectly here, right? You start in one of the city states and you deal with that for the first few levels. Then for some reason, you have to go to the underworld to do something. Then you have to make that trip back uh, without becoming one of the returned. Then, you, you know, and it, it's all mythical, right? Yeah, it's all very this, this very mythical. And then you have to go into the, into the night sky itself to, to fight whatever, uh, whatever the main foe is going to be. It's, it's, it, it's a campaign that, that you can just by reading the setting sort of is laid out for you. You don't need a lot of imagination to see where it can go. Yeah. So the, the, both of these chapters are just really beautiful. Uh, you know, when you try to think like, well, should I buy this book? Um, these, you know, from a DM perspective in terms of the things that inspire you, I think both these chapters do a good job of, of selling anyone on this book. If, if you, you know, if you go to your bookstore, go to your gaming store and you, you know, page through, take a look at this. And I, I think it will call to you. Nice. And in the next episode, we're going to try to finish up our look at Theros by looking at chapter four, creating adventures, chapter five, treasure and chapter six, friends and foes. So anything else you want to say before we take off for the week, Teos? No, no. Uh, thank you everyone for the continued interaction online. It's been great to hear everybody's feedback. Yeah, we've been getting feedback via uh, the website, via Twitter, via uh, the forums. So we, we appreciate feedback, even if you're insulting me when you do it. I, I, appreci I appreciate it. Uh, and I want to thank all our listeners and all our patrons. Uh, if you like the show, please consider uh, supporting us on patreon.com slash MMP. If you can't, you know, just talking about us on social media, interacting with us, that is, uh, that is where our lifeblood is, and, and we appreciate it greatly. Uh, Teos, where can people find you on the internet? You can find me at AlphaStream on Twitter. You can find me at my blog, AlphaStream.org, and on the Misdirected Mark forums. Yep. And you can find me on Twitter at Sean Merwin, or go to those forums at forums.misdirectedmark.com, or you can go to the Misdirected Mark website, and each episode is up there, and you can leave your comments uh, on a particular on a particular episode on that website. Down with D and D is a misdirected Mark production, the media arm of Encoded Designs. So, hey Teos, what do you think we should do now? Nilea, god of the hunt, demands that we go kill some monsters. Uh, I'll, I'll spill some wine. <laughs> you down with D and D? Yeah, you know me. You down with D and D? Yeah, you know me. You down with D and D? Yeah, you know me. Who's down with D and D? You down with D and D? Yeah, you know me. You down with D and D? Yeah, you know me. I'm down with D and D. Yeah, you know me. Who's down with D and D?
down with DM.